Our scripture this evening is from the first book of Kings, the 19th chapter, verses 19 to 21. First Kings 19, verses 19 through 21. So he, Elijah, departed thence and found Elisha the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him, and he with the twelve. And Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow thee. He said unto him, Go back again, for what have I done to thee? And he returned back from him, and took a yoke of oxen, and slew them, and boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen, and gave unto the people, and they did eat. Then he arose and went after Elijah and ministered unto him. In our anarchistic day, many of the old forms and customs and symbols have eroded, so that there is very little in the way of symbols to set forth relationships. To cite one example that a few of you might recall, when I was very young, no young man went courting, and that term alone dates me, without being very careful what gifts he took to the girl until his intentions became serious, he made sure that he gave her only candy and flowers whenever he called. Because to take her anything else was to declare that his intentions were serious, and it could lead to trouble if after giving her, say, a book, he backed out and broke off. Now, the gifts in such a relationship were symbolic. They set forth the meaning of relationships. And the Bible is full of symbolic actions. And one of the central in Scripture we meet with here in our text. We saw last night that God told old Elijah that he was to look beyond his time to the judgment that he was to bring upon Israel and to anoint men who were to be a judgment against Israel and also to appoint Elisha to be prophet in thy room said the Lord. Now Elijah does. 
he passes by him and cast his mantle upon him. One of the great symbols of Scripture. A strange situation. Elijah comes from an unknown background. He is one of the few men of consequence in Scripture whose father's name is not given. He was a nobody in his background, the second Moses by the calling of God. Now he comes to Elisha, who comes from a wealthy family, landowners of consequence. They have twelve yoke of oxen working in the field, eleven hired men and the heir, Elisha, at work. And Elijah passes by and casts his mantle upon him. What did this mean? The casting of a mantle was a sign of adoption. So that immediately Elisha asks permission. I pray thee. Let me go and say goodbye to my father and mother and kiss them. Because now being adopted, he was totally under the authority of his new father. And to cast a mantle over someone was something that only a superior could do to an inferior. Though Elijah was a nobody in his position and background socially. He was the prophet of the Lord. And though Elisha came from a wealthy family and was an heir, he immediately, like a humble child, asked permission even to go back and say goodbye to his parents. The casting of the mantle thus means adoption, but it also means more. It signifies protection. Ruth, when she crept into the threshing floor and laid herself at the feet of Boaz, said to him when he awakened, Cast now thy skirt over thine handmaiden. I who am in need of a husband, of a protector, I come to you now and beseech you, cast your mantle, your skirt over me. But we meet with it elsewhere. We meet with it in the parable that our Lord gives us of the wedding feast in Matthew 22. And as we read in Matthew 22, verse 
Verse 11, And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he said unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why? Because for any man to come into the presence of a king in his own clothing was to come as an enemy, was to come claiming an independence from the king. Anyone who approached a king had to come under his grace and protection as a member of his household, as one whom he cared for, one whom he fed, whom he asked to come to his table and partake thereof as a son of the household, one whom he clothed even as we clothe our children and feed them, so that when we come to the Lord's table, we come to our Father who feeds us, and we acknowledge ourselves to be his children, and we come clothed not in and of ourselves, but in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, for if we come otherwise, we come as his enemies. And so to cast the mantle over someone. is to declare that they are the possession of the superior, of the king, of the Lord, and that they must now live by his every word and be fed by his table, that they are not to be fed by the husks of this world, but to feed at his table, to be commanded by his word, to be clothed by him in all their being. They are to be sons, but servant sons. We read in our text, that Elisha took his leave of his family, he slew the oxen, boiled them with the instruments, with their yoke, with the plow, gave unto the people, and they did eat, and celebrated his sonship, which made him a servant. Then he arose and went after Elijah and ministered unto him. What was this ministry like? In 2 Kings 3, verse 11, we read, But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here a prophet of the Lord that we may inquire of the Lord by him? And one of the king of Israel's servants answered and said, 
Here is Elisha, the son of Shaphat, which poured water on the hands of Elijah. Do you see what it means to be a son? Elijah, the heir of a great household, goes out with this rough man of the desert, Elijah. And he who had servants now is the servant. And when it's time for Elijah to wash his hands, there is his servant son, Elisha, holding the water and pouring it, going and coming at the every word of Elijah. This is what it means to have the mantle cast upon one. He ministered to him. Now let's stop for a moment and look at another area. The paganism of the world round about Elijah and Elisha. And the paganism that was around our Lord and the Apostles and the paganism that is around us today. What was religion in that paganism, and what is it today? Now in the ancient world, when a man went to the temple of the gods, he did not go there to worship. We talk about pagan worship, but we flatter their religions when we say that. Technically, there was no worship in a pagan temple. There was no day of worship. There was no hour of worship. There was the temple. And what did you do? Well, it depended on what you wanted. Were you taking a sea voyage? Why then, in our Lord's Day, for example, you went to the temple of Castor and Pollux. They were the spirits or gods who were the specialists in dealing with sea voyages. And you made an offering and you said, all right, I want protection on this sea voyage. Or you went to the temple of Venus and you said, look, I'm very much in love with Jane Doe. Now, I want her to fall in love with me and I'm giving you so much and I expect results. This is what you did. You went in there and you bought insurance. You treated the gods as insurance agents. And if you didn't like what they gave you, you stopped giving them your business. You went somewhere else. That's why all of pagan antiquity is filled with a multiplicity of gods and temples and cults. After all, it was necessary to shop around, to find what you wanted and to get the services you wanted. Now this is paganism, and it marks many people in the churches. They shop around. They shop around for the church that can do the most for them socially, 
Give them the best friends. Give them a preacher who's always ready to run around and hold their hands every time they have a trifling problem and whose preaching suits them rather than pleases the Lord. Now that's paganism. That's paganism. But what does it mean to be a servant son? To be a Christian means that the mantle of the Lord has been cast upon us. By his sovereign grace, Elijah never had Elisha come to him and say, please, won't you take me? Elisha never knew what was happening until Elijah passed by under orders from God Almighty and cast his mantle upon him. He was then a servant son. We are told that we have been bought with a price. And we are not our own. We are the servant sons of the Almighty by adoption through Jesus Christ. It is not of ourselves, but of him. Nor can we say that this is demeaning to us, nor can we claim that we have any special privileges, because we are told of our Lord himself that he was the servant's son supremely. The servant of the Lord, he is called by the prophet Isaiah, the Son of God, very God of very God and very man of very man. We are told in Hebrews 5, verses 8 through 14, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. For when the time for when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong drink, uh, a meat. For every one that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. The strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. We need to discern what our Lord was, the servant, son. And what does this say for us? We are called. His mantle is thrown upon us. We have been summoned to the wedding feast. 
and the wedding garments have been placed upon us. And we need to be not as babes in Christ, but men who obey, who hearken and who heed the every word of God. The servants are instant in season and out of season to do that which he requires of us. Men who are under authority are the men who command and who inherit. Even the servant's son, Jesus Christ himself, learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And because of that, became the author of our salvation, became he who is King of kings and Lord of lords. To be the servant sons of God, means to be fully under his word. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is this. Whose mantle is upon us? Whose word commands us? Whose servant child are we? Christ passes by by his sovereign grace cast his mantle over us. It is not of us, but of him. And then he summons us and minister unto him and to one another in his name. Are you a servant son? Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank thee that thy mantle has been cast upon us, even as by thy sovereign grace it was cast upon Elisha. We thank thee, Lord, that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ and made partakers of thy table as children by the adoption of grace of thy kingdom, of thy family, of thy royal estate. Teach us, therefore, to live by thine every word. to be thy servant, ministering one to another in thy name, setting forth the crown rights of our Lord in every area of life and thought, and going forth in his power to summon all men and nations into the obedience of Jesus Christ by faith. Bless us for this purpose, we beseech thee in Jesus' name. 
Amen. I trust that you've been more aware of what it means to be a servant son of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have said that each night, Lord willing, we would have a question and answer session, not only concerning anything about the message, but anything concerning the Word of God, philosophy, history, politics, economics, that's interesting to you and that you need to know the answer from the Word of God. So we'll open it this time for some questions and then allow Mr. Russ Jr. to answer them. So, Matthew, I think you said you had some more last night. Would you like to begin tonight? Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> I'd like to uh, take Yes, what do I foresee in the near future for this nation of ours? As I said last night, salvation and judgment are different sides of the same fact. And the cross is the supreme example and decoration of the coincidence of judgment and of salvation. It declares us to be dead for our sins and trespasses and in our sins and trespasses, and it makes us alive in Jesus Christ. And as I said also last night, if the Lord does not judge this nation, we are indeed castaways. Now we have, in our time, seen the be-all and end-all of life in terms of getting everything we want, in terms of material advancement. I spoke when I was in Birmingham last week of a young man, very knowledgeable in doctrine who nonetheless was a little disturbed by some of the things I had to say, especially tithing, because what he wanted to do was to get himself a nice summer place by the lake and a powerboat and indulge his taste in water skiing. It was very upsetting to be told that God's priorities must prevail. Now, that spirit is very commonplace today. People give God the leftovers. God pronounces judgment on all such. And they're going to get the leftovers from the Lord. I feel that God's judgment will strike us in the economic realm. And I think we are going to see before this century is out and perhaps relatively soon a major economic disaster. I do anticipate very rapid inflation in the next few years, possibly the next six years, of a disastrous sort, with far-reaching repercussions 
Now, what will happen will depend upon the people. If there is repentance, if there is a return to the Lord, then there will be a way out. So I do foresee very, very serious times, not only for our country, but the whole world. We are in a time of worldwide unbelief and apostasy. And the persecution of our faith is breaking out in all the world. We simply are not told about it any more than you are told of what's happening here. When faithful pastors in one state not too far from here, 63 of them any day likely to go to prison. So we are on a critical time, but it is encouraging to see the many men who are coming forward and making a stand. And that makes me very hopeful. Their number is growing. So God is calling out a remnant to make a stand and to witness to this nation. All right, another question. Yes. Yes, I am familiar with the book, The Light and the Glory. I think it's a, a very fine statement of the fact that the men who came here and established the colonies were men who saw themselves as called of God to make this a covenant people and covenant states or colonies. Very definitely, they felt that unless the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I don't think the book tells half the story of that, because so much of it has been suppressed. For example, John Eliot, during the Cromwellian era, was able to go so far as to apply the biblical form of government and use just the word of God as the law for all the praying villages of Indians so that elders over ten and elders over fifties and hundreds and thousands were appointed and they governed themselves by the word of God. But the minute Charles II came to found cases up into the 1840s when everything was decided in a trial in terms of scripture. And that's when it was the saying that ignorance of the law is no excuse because everybody knew the book. This is what they were schooled on. Today you can't help but be ignorant of the law. It has no rhyme nor reason in terms of anything God ever ordained. It's simply what a group of anti-Christian men get together and say, our will is going to be done in such and such a way, and it's totally arbitrary. Now, this was very clearly established to be 
a covenant nation. Now, in the Constitution, an oath of office is specified. We don't understand what that means unless we know what an oath meant to the men who inserted that. An oath meant opening the Bible to Deuteronomy 28 and putting your hand on that chapter and swearing before God, invoking his blessings and his curses in terms of that chapter. Now read that chapter when you go home and you'll see something of what the oath of office once meant. Now they don't even know that that was once the case. Yes. Yes. In the Bible, a revival is not when a lot of people say, uh, I accept the Lord, or when they go forward at the meeting. Revival takes place in Scripture when men destroy their idols, when they begin to serve the Lord, when they put him in command of their lives and they live by the every word of God. Now, that's a revival. I believe there are signs of that kind of revival here in this country. You would say that that he's speaking of is generally false or things or fraudulent. Yes, it's fraud. It has no substance. Now, the Christian school movement is a practical manifestation of revival. And the parents who put their children in a Christian school are saying, practically, as for me and my house, we are the Lord's. And the people who are tithing are saying the same thing. And the people who faithfully study this word and pray to God for more light so that they might better obey him and serve him. They manifest a revival. I like to tell people that it's a mistake to go to the Bible as an inspiring book. It doesn't claim to be an inspiring book. It's very often uninspiring reading if it hits you the wrong way as a sinner. It is an inspired book. And it commands us. It doesn't try to inspire us. It says, Thus saith the Lord. And that's how we must read it. Now, very often it goes against the grain because we still have elements of sin in us and sometimes we wish the Lord had word things a little differently, you know. He gets very personal. All right, is there another question? Yes, 
opposed medicine, the church school as opposed to the so-called evangelistic school that is the school that is in which his parents have their children in the school and also the parents attend the church and they do more. Yeah. There are, I know, some schools which limit attendance to the church families. There's some very fine schools in the hands of men I highly respect and regard that are dedicated to that. I feel, however, that the Christian school is proving to be one of the most remarkable means of reaching children and their parents for Jesus Christ that we've seen for some generation. It is so effective an arm for that purpose that this is why the federal and the state governments are moving against it. They recognize very clearly that if the Christian school movement is not captured, controlled, and destroyed, by the end of this century, not only will the state schools be dead, but we will have a Christian country. Now, this is the impact these schools are having. Here and there across the country, I know of churches, sizable congregations, formed entirely out of parents who put their children in a Christian school because they wanted the best schooling for their children and it led to their conversion. Well, I no more. All right, let's stand and be dismissed. And then those of you that have them, if you'll save them till tomorrow night, Lord willing, we will have another question and answer time then. Brother Waters, if you would dismiss us in prayer, please. Our Father, for thy word and for the proclamation of it, we're grateful and we pray day by day for a greater insight, for a greater knowledge of it, that indeed, O Lord, we may know how to serve thee better. Grant thy continued blessings upon this meeting, upon the people here, with all others for whom it is our duty and privilege to pray. Dismiss us in thy loving favor and ever direct us in thy love and thy righteousness for the sake of Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Fellowship with each other before you go.